This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Darshan Johan. Recently, Minister of Economy Rafizi Ramli said that the government is looking in principle at the policy for a progressive wage system in Malaysia. Now, the minister said that this is in line with the 12th Malaysia plan's aim for the compensation of employees as a percentage of GDP to hit 40%, which is an increase of roughly 3 to 6%. For perspective, the compensation of employees as a percentage of GDP is about 50% in Australia and South Korea, slightly over 40% in Singapore. I think this highlights just how low and unfair wages are in Malaysia. But is the progressive wage model the right way to go about improving wages of employees? What can we learn from Singapore, the country that originated the idea of a progressive wage model? On the first half of the show, I'm going to be speaking to Terence Ho, Associate Professor in Practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, National University of Singapore. And he's going to be giving us the 101 on the progressive wage model that's used in Singapore. And on the second half of the show, I will be speaking to Kevin Zhang, Senior Research Officer at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute on whether Malaysia needs the progressive wage model. Welcome to the show, Terence. Thanks for having us. Now, Terence, what is the progressive wage model? So the progressive wage model is Singapore's alternative to a minimum wage. It prescribes a set of wage floors and ladders for sectors that hire lower wage workers for example, the cleaning, security, and landscaping sectors. And the wage ladders correspond to different levels of skill and job responsibility, and hence allow for wages to grow in tandem with skills and productivity. Right. So you mentioned a couple of sectors. Um, so just to be clear, the, the PWM isn't applied across all sectors in Singapore, is that correct? Yeah, the sectors and occupations covered by the PWM are those that employ the majority of low-wage workers. So, for example, I mentioned cleaning, security, landscaping, Mm -hmm. but also food services and retail, and certain occupations, uh, namely drivers and clerical assistants. But I wanted to highlight as well that in addition, firms in all other sectors that hire foreign workers are required to pay their local workers a minimum local qualifying salary of $1,400 a month. So taken together with the sector-specific uh, PWM, this means that the progressive wages cover more than 8 in 10 lower-wage workers. And uh, with a good number of the remainder, also able to benefit from an accreditation mark called the progressive wage mark for firms that voluntarily implement progressive wages. Right. So I want to get a better understanding of how this works. How does the government collaborate with industry stakeholders to develop, let's say, training programs and certification schemes for workers under PWM? There are training requirements that correspond to each rung of the wage ladder under the sectoral PWMs. And these are based on skills frameworks that have already been developed uh, for each sector by the relevant government bodies in consultation with employers, industry association, trade unions, as well as educational institutions. So there's also already a national credential system called the Workforce Skills Qualifications, or WSQ, that the sector PWMs rely on. Even some forms of in-house training may also be recognized, and the government will provide substantial training subsidies, which include cost fee and absentee payroll funding for employers. You know, the whole idea of a minimum wage or a progressive wage model is to fundamentally prevent sort of um, exploitation in terms of wages and also sort of reduce the the inequality gap. 
I'm wondering how does the PWM address um, in income inequality and improve the wages of low-wage workers? So if you look at the um, first three sectors that have already implemented the PWM for a number of years, uh, security, cleaning, and landscaping, they benefited over 70,000 local workers. The median real wages of local workers in these uh, three sectors rose by a cumulative 30% between 2014 and 2019, which is higher than the 21% increase of the median for all sectors. So we have seen that the PWM has had an impact in the sectors which implemented it early. And more recently, of course, they've expanded it significantly. So we're, we're hoping that impact will also be felt. Right. And you also mentioned something called the wage ladder earlier, um, you know, because this whole concept is very new to most Malaysians. Can you explain what that would look like, how it looks like? Sure. The progressive wage model for each sector doesn't just set out a minimum wage, but also a wage ladder with the wages corresponding to different levels of skills and job responsibilities. So, for example, in the security sector, there are various job ladders, uh, um, job ladder rungs, beginning with the security officer and progressing to senior security officer, security supervisor, senior security supervisor, and finally, chief security officer. Right. So, you know, like, you know, I just want to clarify again, you know, the, the PWM doesn't cover, you know, all industries you mentioned, you know, like security, cleaning services, gardening, so on and so forth. So what about industries like, let's say, um, you know, the industry that you are in, you know, academia, um, what if you're a journalist, you're an accountant, you're an engineer, you work in an ad agency, so on and so forth. What about these industries? There, there's no specific uh, PWM for these sectors as there are fewer low-wage workers in these sectors. Mm -hmm. Earlier, I mentioned that um, employers that hire foreign workers must pay all their local workers at least this uh, minimum qualifying salary of $1,400. So for the rest, um, now the National Trades Union Congress is looking at for, let's say, the middle-skill, middle-income professions, extending the concept of progressive wages with a new model called the career progression model. But the details are still being worked out. Right. The assumption that there are sort of not much unionization or sort of collective bargaining power in, in Singapore, but you did bring up the word unions a couple of times already in this conversation. So could you contextualize that a little bit more for us? So in Singapore, we are quite uh, proud of this tripartite model we have where, um, you know, the unions, the employer associations and the government can come together to uh, negotiate various things, including wages, uh, working conditions and so on. So although um, more of the white-collar or professional uh, jobs, these are more left to market forces because uh, the bargaining power isn't particularly weak and there's sufficient competition for talent uh, in these sectors, um, the unions are still quite active, especially among the um, lower end of the income spectrum in terms of wage bargaining. And there's a good sense of trust under this tripartite system that enables it to work. All right. So, you know, whenever... Um, there are proposals of whether it's a minimum wage, whether it's a progressive wage model, whatever, um, you know, extra benefits for employees, um, employers will have the question. And, and that is, what measures are in place to incentivize employers um, to, adapt, uh, to adopt this wage model? Um, and how effective have these measures been? So wh what does it look like in the Singaporean context? Yeah, so in sectors with a PWM, it is actually mandatory for employers to pay progressive wages as these are stipulated in the licensing conditions for the sector. And furthermore, the Ministry of Manpower 
They have their own administrative requirements for firms to pay that minimum qualifying salary as a precondition for hiring foreign workers. Uh, so the PWM implementation is quite effective. But to encourage firms that do not hire foreign workers to voluntarily adopt the progressive wage mark, the accreditation mark I mentioned, the government has made this uh, mark a precondition to participate in government tenders. Right. But I guess the question is, you know, do companies own adapt this model because there are direct incentives by the government oh. that help them, you know, balance and maintain their profit margins? Um, uh, you know, of the salaries of the of the of the of the CEOs or the directors and, and so on and so forth. Or be, uh, is there a thing where once this model is implemented, companies now have to then restructure, and we are and we are seeing where you know the employers and the CEOs are taking a slightly uh, you know perhaps a, a a pay cut so to speak, and in turn you you know more money is then given to employees, more benefits are given to employees. I'm wondering if there is that restructuring. Or as far as the employers are concerned, it's business as usual. So there's some recognition in Singapore that eventually the higher costs for a more inclusive society, if you like, would have to be borne by um, you know consumers as well as uh, the businesses and employers. So for example, in uh, the pricing of tenders and the bids that the companies put forward for cleaning contracts and so on, they will have to reflect higher wages and a whole of society has to bear the costs. Uh, that said, the government is providing transitional support to help employers via what we call a progressive wage credit scheme that partly offsets the higher wage costs arising from PWM for a number of years up to 2026. So overall, would you say that the PWM has brought about positive change to workers in Singapore? Or, or, you know, I'm talking about something a bit more transformational in which workers, they actually see their lives changing on the ground. Now that the progressive wages have been expanded to cover more than 8 in 10 lower wage workers, and this is a fairly uh, recent moves in 2022 and 2023, mm -hmm. um, we hope that the wage gaps will not widen over time. And in fact, that lower wage workers will gain ground on the median. And uh, the progressive wages in many of the existing sectors as well, they have been um, updated and be more aggressive, if you like, to help bring this about. Already, we have seen that the Gini coefficient, a measure of income inequality, has trended down over the past decade. But um, these are further efforts to accelerate uh, this move to help lower-wage workers catch up. Are there any potential downsides or drawbacks of the progressive wage model? So it is uh, rather resource-intensive in the mm -hmm. sense that the progressive wages will need to be continually updated in line with the general wage level and the cost of living. So um, much effort has to be committed to the tripartite wage negotiations. It's also recognized that um, the productivity gains may not always be able to offset the higher wage costs. Hence, as what I mentioned uh, earlier, the additional costs will have to be borne by companies or pass on to consumers once the transitional support from the government tapers off. And if, as with any such scheme, there's potential uh, gaming behavior, such as companies trying to cut worker benefits to offset the higher wage costs or changing employment contracts to contracts for service. So regulators will have to be alert to all of these. Right. So, you know, what happens in Singapore if, or, or have you seen like um, sort of widespread acceptance or, you know, everybody is on board when, when it comes to the various stakeholders in Singapore to um, implement this 
um, or you know, do you see you know companies sort of pushing back against this or trying to find loopholes in which they don't have to to sort of um, follow the progressive wage model? I think we have uh, succeeded in building a national consensus of the importance of inclusivity and this being a very uh, important measure and support of that inclusivity. But of course, within uh, each sector during the negotiations uh, behind closed doors, I expect they are, have been quite intense. And um, I'm just glad that eventually they've been able to work out an agreement which most um, companies will accept. Occasionally, they have found some companies trying to uh, game the system, uh, in which case the NCUC has uh, swooped in to sort of call out these companies. But thankfully, so far, they've been in the minority. So I think there is this national consensus building up that this is the way to go. And the need for inclusive society is one that is very important. Before we wrap this conversation up, um, at least this part of the conversation um, with you, Terence, um, just some overall thoughts. Um, you know, because Singapore did go down the route of a PWM instead of a minimum wage, um, how would you uh, sum up that choice overall? Do you think it was the right decision? So one benefit of this um, PWM route is that there's sectoral uh, customization. So rather than one size fits all, and there's also uh, the possibility of uh, opportunities and further progress beyond just a flat minimum. The downside, of course, is that it's not a 100% catch-all, but with the recent moves um, to benefit directly more than 8 in 10 low-wage workers, as well as the accreditation mark um, to help some of the rest of the low-wage workers, it is almost um, as comprehensive as a minimum wage. So I would say that it's largely achieved the objectives of minimum wage while having still some gaps. And as I mentioned earlier, one downside is that it is quite resource intensive in terms of implementation. It will require continual renegotiation within each of the sectors. Terence, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That was Terence Hole from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy examining Singapore's progressive wage model. We continue our discussion on the progressive wage model after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan. And before the break, I spoke to Terence Ho. He's uh, from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. And we were talking about the progressive wage model um, from a Singapore perspective because they are the country of origin to um, implement the progressive wage model. So looking at the pros and cons, what have they accomplished so far? Now I'm going to be speaking to Kevin Zhang from the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute. He's a senior researcher there. And he's going to be taking a look at it from a Malaysian perspective. Can this be adopted by Malaysia, um, you know, especially since we already have a minimum wage law? So, Kevin, um, you know, according to the Minister of Economy, like I mentioned in my introduction, um, Malaysia is currently studying ways in which they can implement a progressive wage system. But the thing is, unlike Singapore, where Singapore chose to go down the PWM route rather than the minimum wage route, but Malaysia already has a minimum wage law. It's currently at 1,500 ringgit. Singapore does not. So what's the difference between a minimum wage law and a progressive wage model? Right. And I think this is a very good question because even in Singapore, you see discussions among parliamentarians, you know, that and, and, and some of the opposition MPs would suggest that Singapore needs to have a minimum wage because they would point out the inadequacies of the current PWM. I think just for a short 
the difference of a minimum wage is that, as the, as the name suggests, minimum wage applies to all sectors. So, for example, the thousand five rule applies to cleaners, drivers, even like office, uh, you know, administrators. Whereas in Singapore, the progressive wage is really sectoral based, and it really started out from uh in twenty fourteen by just uh, three sectors, and over time it has expanded to. Uh, I think now it's just about more than six or eight sectors. But still at the moment, it, as what Taryn suggested, it does not cover all sectors, let alone it does not cover all minimum wage workers. So there needs to be other supplementary uh, measures to uh, supplement progressive wage, whereas minimum wage applies to all minimum wage workers. So you, uh, at least on paper, you should not have any uh, Malaysians who are earning below 1,005. Right. So I'm wondering, what are the pros and cons of each approach? And also, is it even necessary to have a progressive wage system or a progressive wage model when we already have a minimum wage law? Why not just progressively? Because if the ultimate goal is to reduce the inequality gap, to reduce the gap between the rich and the poor, why not just progressively keep increasing the minimum wage? So so I think you, you raised a very good question. and um. Let's just be uh, set this up first. Is mm-hmm. that um, there are other uh, European countries uh, that have something which is, a, 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 I mean, they don't call it a progressive wage, but they do minimum wage setting by sectoral basis. Right. So, in that sense, that's not very different from what Singapore is doing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, in, in, in Germany, collective bargaining is done by unions and these are sectoral or trade specific. So, you would have uh, different sectors pushing for a particular income and and and, and whereas um, Malaysian of course took the uh, I would say the more uh, easier to implement route right so I, I think Terence has really shared the pros and cons of progressive wage uh, but uh, I think the the one of the key difference for minimum wage the pros of it is that you really don't need to have that much kind of uh, uh, you know the enforcement is much easier because you know any firms that pay uh, 1005 or for now a micro SME pays below 1002 they are in violation of the minimum wage you don't need to see what kind of sectors they are and um, this also requires a lot less coordination between sectors so the 1005 is established and I suspect this was established as a, a national level without uh, really going talking to every single sector intensely about what is your your, your basis uh, whereas uh, for progressive wage to work, you really have to understand how the workings dynamics, uh, it, to some extent, even profit margins of each sector to be able to come up with, uh, you know, a sectoral amount. Whereas for progressive, uh, sorry, for minimum wage, uh, it covers everyone, and, and, and that makes both the implementation and enforcement, and even the uh, you know workers' rights a lot easier to understand. Right. So countries like Denmark, Kevin, they when we look at their policies, they do not have a you know, progressive wage model, nor a minimum wage law. But it seems like their workers get much higher salaries than workers in this region because their workers have very strong collective bargaining powers. Now, could you compare and contrast, let's say, the, the PWM with you know having very strong trade unions, active strong trade unions like we see in countries like Denmark, certain European countries, France, so on and so forth. Um, and also comparing that with the minimum wage model. Right. So I think it's important to recognize that when there is progressive wage or minimum wage, it's a symptom that something has not really gotten right in wage bargaining. Because right. you know, if 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 wage bargaining has gone well, like in the European context, then probably there's no need for such a government-mandated national uh, minimum wage levels. And the idea of having a minimum wage is precisely 
recognizing firstly that there's a power imbalances between low wage workers or employees and employers because we know that you know that in, in practice it's not free market you know especially for people who are lower rungs of the income ladder they have imperfect information they might not have uh, sufficient uh, avenues to upskill themselves and they might subjected to you know foreign labor competition so it is because of this kind of market uh, failure therefore there is a minimum wage laws being set in Malaysia and in conversely in Singapore progressive wage. And there's also a difference in the European context is that actually if you look at the percentage of uh, workers in unions, it's actually not very high in France, maybe around 20-30%. But the difference in European context is that the unions is able to bargain on behalf of that sector, even if many workers in that sector is actually not a member of that union. So there's that idea that the unions can speak on behalf of everyone, which I don't think you have that in Malaysia, to say the least, uh, because you know historically Malaysia, of course, has been going on the whole uh, wanting to get foreign investments and doing Tun Mahathir's first premiership. You know, in that sense, union power was actually curtailed in order to reduce labor costs and to attract foreign investments. So this is the historical legacy of Malaysia, which is not very different from other countries in ASEAN, and and it's a, a very different trajectory from what the European kind of unions are able to do in terms of bargaining for collective wages. Um, but the thing about Singapore is that there is the idea of tripartism or corporatism, and I think just think that each country has to find its own ways of uh resolving or at least mitigating low wage issues. So for the uh at least for continental European example, the unions do not have a large membership, but the unions are able to speak at least on behalf of the sector. Whereas for uh, uh the the Anglo-Saxon economic model, for example, in the UK, uh, unions are somewhat weaker. But then again, uh, UK has a really high minimum wage uh, relative to a median wage. I think it's one of the highest in the developed countries. Currently, it's about two thirds. The minimum wage of UK is about two thirds of the medium wage, right? Whereas in Singapore, uh, there's this uh, tripartism, which is basically, as Terence has mentioned, uh, collaboration between the unions, government, and employers. So in that sense, this uh, uh kind of a tri uh triangular forces really helps to 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 do wage bargaining. And I think that the the issue for Malaysia is that there's no clear way out of the current conundrum that Malaysia is facing, because um, a lot of it just seems to be the government implementing minimum wage, but there's a strong resistance from the employer side, and there doesn't seem to be having a, a kind of a constructive way of resolving the low wage issues because we all know that um, um, there, there there are also issues with the Malaysian uh, minimum wage. Right, exactly what you're saying, right? Because because when it comes to Malaysia, it is not just a question of low wages in certain sectors which is a problem um, and like we need you know all these people call it low skilled and low wage work and so on and so forth I don't like these terms because I think these are important skills that people need to have but the point is all of everybody needs to get a higher salary but where does you know let's say in the Malaysian context uh, professionals people with uh, you know, degrees, masters, so on and so forth, people in, in the advertising sector, people in academia, people like journalists, media, so on and so forth. Where do all of these sort of sectors fit into our progressive wage model discussion? Do they even fit into this discussion? Because the problem in Malaysia is that wages are bad across the board, regardless of your you know education level and, and so on and so forth. 
Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at it. Um, the more optimistic way is to think about the spillover effect. Mm. So, um, assuming that the wages for, uh, for lack of a better word, low-skilled empl- occupations are going to increase, for example. Um, in fact, if you, if you um, in, currently in KL, uh, I did some uh, number crunchings. Uh, the low-skilled workers, are, so, so, so generally there are three tiers, right? The low-skilled, the uh, semi-skilled, and the, low, uh, and the, the high-skilled. So if you look at uh, KL uh, federal territories, uh, the low-skilled workers, the, the median income in 2020 was actually 2,000 ringgit. And um, you know, uh, semi-skilled employees, about uh, 2.1 ringgit. So presumably, there could be an argument saying that if we increase the, the income of low-skilled workers, for example, to maybe 3,000 ringgit, then uh, you know, white-collar jobs, for example, like uh, maybe accountants or what, they will have to increase... Uh, Maybe by they, they they can't be stuck in their current amount because their current right. amount the starting pay is only about three thousand RM right for graduates as well mm-hmm. familiar with so that's the optimistic kind of a argument but I'm afraid in practice that kind of skill over effect may or may not happen um, the reason why is also because there's different uh, skill set and you know employees are not as versatile as as what they hope for you know um, but I would think that in general and uh, even in the, the the Singapore discussion and, and globally. Um, um, Low wage uh, workers and um, you know solving the middle income trap. These are actually quite different uh, questions and avenues to resolve it. So um, I think it is also asking a bit too much for medium uh, minimum wage or progressive wage to solve the wage issues of the M forty for that matter. Because uh, you are really talking about different skill set, different kind of uh, uh, the bargaining power dynamics, and and I it's probably best to for uh, economics minister Rafizi to also have. Uh, different strategies for the M40 wage stagnation. Right. So how then do we approach it in practical terms in the sense that because we already have a minimum wage law, um, it's great, you know, it needs to go, it's it's not good enough in terms of how much the minimum wage is, which is 1,005, it needs to be higher, but it's great that we have a minimum wage law. So how will a PWM come into play? Will it are we looking at replacing the minimum wage law or just filling the gaps that the minimum wage law, perhaps there are certain you know, areas where the minimum wage law isn't as effective. Perhaps it doesn't encourage people to reskill. So the progressive wage model comes into play there. How do you look at this? Personally, I do have my doubts about whether Malaysia can implement PWM because as Terence has shared, there needs to be strong coordination between um, employers, trade unions and the government, which, um, you know, just to revive trade unions in Malaysia to make them representative of the workers is going to be a humongous challenge. But subsequently, the other thing about Singapore is also because, you know, we are, we are a city-state and you can have a lot of um, skills creditation coupled with, at the same time, uh, skills training centers. So, and, and these are highly subsidized by the government, which I don't think you have the infrastructure in Malaysia. For example, uh, okay, so one of the jobs now that is uh, being implemented in Singapore is about, and, and, and this gets a bit uh, tricky, which is about uh, office, uh, what do you call it? Uh, clerical support staff. And, and in Malaysia, if you have a, so if you have a skills framework for clerical support staff, you know, you can start with assistant uh, club, uh, club and senior club. Um, the kind of demands, for example, in police, Kelantan for such jobs, the kind of skill set 
I suspect for the employer side, it would be a bit different from Clang Valley. What would counted? What would be considered as, you know, a uh, junior level, senior level? And these are the skills framework that, you know, is is going to be difficult to sing in Malaysia because already let's not forget that in Malaysia the pro- there are significant productivity differences across the states between a uh, Klang Valley and uh, East Coast, between Klang Valley and East Malaysia, and for progressive wage to work out in practice, you have to sing that kind of skills framework. And, and in order to skill the skills framework, that takes a lot of bargaining at the same time. You know, So you have to get the different states representative involved. And I think that's going to be a very difficult task. So, so in the Malaysia case, actually, medium uh, wage is actually, personally, I don't think it's a bad idea. It's just probably there needs to be clearer avenues about how minimum wage can incorporate a lot more of training at the same time, the wage ladder. But... Um, but the whole ecosystem, you know, they have to recreate it, which is going to be quite a difficult task. Right. And because of that, I'm wondering in the context of Malaysia specifically, because we already have a minimum wage uh, uh, policy, I'm wondering if, you know, uh, if there are more sort of important measures that could be taken um, to then continue closing the gap between the rich and the poor, between the haves and the have not, right? For example, um, implementing progressive wealth taxes to fund universal basic services, um, pension schemes, for example, uh, maybe targeted basic income for those of a particular income level. You know, uh, also, you know, like we just talked about, just in, uh, this coming in tandem with increasing the minimum wage to, let's say, a living wage. What are your thoughts on that? The difficulty for Malaysia is that um, in the recent budget tabled by Ismail Sabri, then Prime Minister, and so uh, uh, Dato Sri Anwar, um, there, the budget, there is a 100 billion budget deficit, right? So your, uh, the, government, the federal government uh, revenue, I think if I remember, is about 260 billion. And the expenditure for 2023 was about 360 billion. So there is already a 100 billion deficit. And all the things you mentioned, they are good, they are nice, but you know where's the money going to come from, right? And it seems that there's a lack of political will by the current administration or even the previous administration to implement significant fiscal reform. So if you look at uh, the three prime minister, there was uh, one of uh, you know a, a super normal profit uh, tax to like maybe like uh, what the top gloves during the COVID uh, pandemic. But apart from that, there hasn't been significant changes to the tax system. And even GST, you know, we are not sure whether it will be reintroduced or what wasn't accept. So the key thing for Malaysia, I think, is to re-examine its fiscal revenue structure. And given that a lot of the expenditure, on the other hand, are actually, I think more than half are actually taken up by civil servant salaries or pension funds, right? So that component, expenditure is pretty hard to cut because of about how Malaysia, where the money is spent on. So I think the way that, the place that Malaysia can make some reform is actually to improve taxation. But the question is that I think there will be, there, there certainly isn't any appetite to do fiscal reform before the upcoming state election. Uh, I think the state election results will to quite a significant extent determine whether the current Anwar administration is willing or unwilling to do uh, tax reforms. But you know, the question is like what you say, where's the money going to come from? Are there any lessons or practices from Singapore, um, whether we look at the PWM, uh, especially if we look at the PWM model that can be applied to Malaysia, even if we don't necessarily sort of implement the exact same type of PWM model in Malaysia? Are there any sort of 
things we can learn from it? I think one thing that Malaysia can consider doing is that, you know, in practice, PWM is a sectoral kind of wage setting right. or sectoral minimum wage, arguably that mm-hmm. sense. So Malaysia could consider having a more sectoral or even a regional-based minimum wage if sectoral requires a bit too much of coordination. Because currently you have the same minimum wage in Klang Valley, in East Coast, in Perlis, right. in Johor, which... Um, doesn't really make sense given that how the productivity and the profit margins of different regions are different, right? So that's something that they could consider uh, doing, basically going a bit more uh, granular without re-replicating the whole entire system of Singapore. And the other thing that Singapore and Malaysia, and to be fair, the employers has been asking for for the last decade or so is to have transitional subsidies. So the thing about Singapore is it's not just about this training curriculum skills framework, or accreditation, but the key thing is really to provide the transitional subsidies. For example, in the first year, for this year, actually firms get up to 75% of the wage increase they paid to uh, their employees, right? So, and the things that when Malaysia implemented minimum wage, I don't think that there has been any like uh, subsidies given to firms. So that can perhaps, you know, help to ease the short-term pain for firms while doing the meanwhile, hopefully they get more productive or, you know, they, they are able to better structure their manpower needs. I think that's the, the two things Malaysia can learn. All right, Kevin, before we wrap this conversation up, final thoughts, does Malaysia need a PWM? Personally, I think that Malaysia will find it really hard to implement PWM, at least based on the Singapore model, but there are definitely some things that Malaysia can learn, as I said, the sectoral kind of wage bargaining or, oh. or even, the, even better skills training. That's something that Malaysia definitely can and should uh, you know, consider. Kevin, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. That was Kevin Zhang, the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.